This week on Writers Inc. Amazon's algorithm is extremely smart in helping Amazon make more money. That's that's if you ever want to analyze their algorithm, always ask yourself what makes Amazon more money, and that's probably what it's actually doing. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out, school's in session. This is Writer's Inc. Here we are back for another week. What's going on, man? Ah, keeping busy. Um, just watching uh, the virus slowly dwindle in some places and increase in other places and masks now required. Like I, it, it's, it's nutty. Um, I, I just read a story and I, I was on uh, Joanna Penn's podcast. Um, I think it actually aired this week, but that was a great things, interview, by the way. I love that. I, I got to slow down my, my speaking voice, <laughs> man. Like I, <laughs> I listened back to it and like, I, I felt like I was talking fast listening to myself, but I just, I get so excited about these things and I just start rambling really quick. <laughs> but um, one of the stories that she mentioned was uh, how, how physical bookstores um, are, are, are like how everything is just kind of shifting to digital in Europe. Um, and, and it got me thinking because my wife and I actually went to, to Europe um, for our, our honeymoon. We went to Paris and we went to um, to Rome. And one of the things that I noticed straight off the bat, particularly in Paris, is there were bookstores everywhere. Uh, a lot of people just sitting outside, you know, in those little cafes and stuff, just reading books. But, you know, a lot of physical bookstores. Um, and, and, you know, I've, I've since learned this because this was, you know, years ago. Um, not that far back, 2014. Um, but I, I've learned that over there, they're, they're kind of a little bit behind on the ebook thing. Um, and people still, you know, to this day, they still kind of prefer physical books, but the virus is kind of forcing that change. Um, and now people are, are looking at ebooks. And, you know, it really got me thinking, like looking at like just the Amazon page, how the Amazon page itself really reflects a physical bookstore. You know, like the way they, they you kind of walk in, you you look at the page, it's got suggestions placed next to the, the other books, but it's like they're the Amazon store really is mimicking a physical bookstore in a in a virtual sense, which is which is kind of neat. Um and then I just I, I started going off on a rant. I started thinking about how how you know how the discovery of books is changing because indie authors have been pushing ebooks, you know, basically from the get-go, you know, mainly out of necessity. They couldn't get into a physical store. Uh, but now the virus is kind of forcing the traditional guys to, you know, to have to go that same route. So where they were, you know, not necessarily ignoring ebooks, but they were de definitely a second class citizen to their the print copies. Now they're being forced to to rethink that. And it's, you know, all these things are really starting to overwhelm the, the ad systems, whether it's Facebook or whether it's Amazon ads, um, you know, and on top of that, you've got Mark Dawson finishing up his class this week, which means you've got a thousand students that are going to get out there with their <laughs> checkbook and, and start throwing money at Amazon ads. Uh, but it got me thinking like, how, how else can you, you know, create book discovery? Like, what can you do that's different? Um, and I, I kind of wanted to put this out to our audience and see if anybody's willing to throw something in the comments, but just some, some, some kind of out of the box thinking, like I'll give you an example. So when I lived in Pittsburgh, are, are you familiar with the haunted house at, at Thousand Acre Park? Yes. I know you, 
Okay, so they, they get a, a ridiculous amount of guests at that particular haunted house every year. Um, so when we moved to Pittsburgh, I, I went over and I talked to the guy who runs it, and he agreed to let me pass out free download cards for Forsaken to every single person that came through the gate. So as people were, you know, standing in line, you know, sometimes waiting for an hour or two, they would get a free download card and, and they would download my book and they would start reading it a lot of them while they were standing waiting in line. Wow. But I, I gave away, I think one year, 84,000 copies <laughs> of Forsaken. Um, so then the, the second year I started doing that with other haunted houses around the country. Um, you know, they just, they would either pass them out to people that were standing in line or they would just leave, I printed up business cards with the download codes um, and they would just give it to them when they got their tickets or whatever. But, you know, all in, all told, I've given away probably a little over 800,000 copies of that book um, through haunted houses. Um, and, and that has led to other sales because those people read that book and then they you know want to pick up something else and pick up something else. So that was kind of an, an outside of the box kind of thing. And I was just curious if our audience could come up with anything you know, along those lines. Have you ever done anything, you know, different other, you know, you not, know, not Amazon ads or Facebook, but yeah, just something really. Yeah. I've experimented with some things. Um, uh, one of the things I experimented with that I really didn't get much traction on was putting together, uh, physical packages. Now, again, with COVID, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know how this would play now, but like I, I had a series that was set in a post-apocalyptic Cleveland and it featured a woman who survived by living on a boat. So I went to the, uh, the shipyards on Lake Erie and I bought like these old sails and I cut them up into pieces and I had some like sailing hardware and, and some like rope and some other things that were sort of mentioned in the story. And I made that like a gift box. Um, okay. And now that was more of like the merch side versus promotion, but it was one of those things where I was like, how else can I sort of tie in the story in, in, this, in some other way? Well, the traditional guys, they, they do that a little bit too. Um, when first, uh, for fourth monkey, when that one went out to the, the press, um, they put it in a white box tied with a black string, um, which is something from the book. So they, they kind of tried to separate it when it went out, um, Putnam for Dracul, they sent it in a, a box that looked almost like a vampire hunting kit. Yeah. Um, and, and this was mainly to press, you know, cause the yep. book was already sold and everything, but you know, that allows it to stand out because if you're a reviewer at, you know, publishers weekly or, or, you know, a large magazine, you're getting, you know, who knows how many books every, every week from the various publishers. So if they're looking across their office at the big stack that the UPS guy just delivered, you know, what can you do to make your particular book jump out at them? Yeah. I, I ended up doing something really silly for fourth monkey. And I don't know if we've talked about this before, but at the very beginning of the book, there's a letter from the serial killer to the police. Um, so I had that letter. I, I wrote it out in, in my own handwriting, which looks sadly like a, a serial killer. <laughs> um, I wrote it out on a sheet um, and had it printed. And then on the backside, I had the marketing data for the book. Um, and I mailed that to every library in the country. So they would get an envelope in the mail and they would open it up and it, you know, first glance, it looks like you're reading a letter from a serial killer. So until they flip it over, they don't realize what it actually is. Um, and, and I did that mainly because I had our local bookstores and my local library, I, I asked them what kind of material they get from the publishers on a regular basis. And, you know, they were telling me it's mainly, you know, postcards and, you know, simple things, but it, it's junk mail. Like they, they glance at it and they throw it in the bin before they even read it. And I had um, my local bookstore just collected for a week um, just to, to kind of get a handle on what it all looked like. And, you know, it was just a bunch of, you know, postcards and stuff. Um, so I wanted to do something that would cause them to, to actually read the whole thing. And, and it ended up le leading to a whole bunch of sales um, from libraries. Um, but we did have one librarian who opened it up and thought it was real. Um, and, and she called my editor and freaked out the editor and we ended up pulling the project at, at some point. But oh, wow. you know, I, I, yeah, I, I do that kind of thing all the time though. You know, like, you know, it comes from, you know, that Madonna, you know, thing that I had mentioned a while back, you know, like she would release an album and she would look at what the marketing people were doing and she'd create a list of that. And then she would create a list of everything that they're not doing. And that's what she would focus on. Yeah. So I, I tend to do that with every 
book. Um, but in today's world, I think you really do have to be creative. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think too, uh, having some type of physical something matters too. Like you can do things completely digitally, but I think it has more impact. Like even like think about the the difference between receiving an email versus receiving a handwritten letter in the postal mail. Like just as a person, like that carries so much more weight and and but it's more costly and it, it's more time intensive, which is why you know people don't do that kind of stuff. But I think you're right. It, you know, if you're looking for general ideas, thinking along the lines of how can I bring this story into the physical realm and put something in someone's hands, that that might be some a way to go. Yeah, that's really true. Like I'm I'm looking at my desk right now, and I've got. Um four books on my, my desk that I've gotten in the last couple of days to read from other authors that want me to blurb them. Um, they're physical copies. I've probably gotten another 10 that were eBooks that, you know, may or may not be on my Kindle. Um, but you know, like those four are sitting on my desk and they're going to keep nagging me till I do something yeah. with them. I either have to move them to my bookshelf or give them, you know, they have, they're there, they're bugging me. Like they're physically bugging me because they're there. So it's, it's in my face. Um, the e-copies e can tend to vanish a lot easier. So that that's very true. Yeah. Yeah. Fun stuff. Yeah, man. Uh, we'll have to get into some more of your crazy ideas. We, we should probably do like a full episode <laughs> on some of your craziest ideas. I need to come up with new ones. We've got new <laughs> books coming out. So I, I need, need another crazy idea. <laughs> yep. Yep. For sure. Yeah. All right. So we ready to get into the interview for today? Yeah, I'm excited about this one. And anytime we can get somebody who who knows how to lift the hood on the the Amazon ad cart or just you know sales in general and and understands what they're looking at, it, it definitely perks up my my attention. And I I, I really want to hear what they have to say. And and this is somebody who's been doing it for a while. Um, he's got a really good handle on it. And frankly, like I like I know I could understand this stuff if I really put the time into it. You know, I I, I I've got a computer programming background. I, I know how to write code, but I I don't necessarily want to understand it. So that knowing that somebody is out there that that's passionate about it and capable of understanding it and creating tools that the rest of us can use that allows us to just kind of sit our, our butts in our chair and just write instead of having to focus on this stuff. Um, that that's huge. Yeah. And Dave Chesson's that guy. I mean, he is, uh, like you said, he's been in this for a while. He knows what he's doing. He's a well-respected voice, uh, in, in the, in the, in our circles. And, uh, it's going to be really fun talking to him. Yeah. I can't wait. All right, let's do it. All right, man. I thought uh, the first thing I wanted to know is what exactly does a nuclear engineer do? <laughs> um, well, it's kind of funny is, is that one thing that was surprising is you don't get to shoot from the hip. Uh, you actually have to follow <laughs> procedures. Um, as a matter of fact, honestly, I feel like a good portion of the job is memorizing most of the steps, uh, preparing for any you know situations that happen. But for me, uh, being an officer in a submarine, I was an engineering officer of the watch. So I was actually uh, overall kind of in charge of, of my team and making sure that we keep the reactor running as well as any scheduled maintenance and then just being prepared in case the bad thing happens. Wow. Day-to-day, uh, -day, is, it, is it just another job? Is there a certain level of stress that's involved with that? Well, being on a submarine in general is ridiculously stressful. Uh, if you imagine... There's about 150 people. Now, back back at the time that I was there, it was only only guys. Um, now, both genders. But imagine 150 dudes on in a black steel tube without the light of day for two and a half months, <laughs> breathing recycled air. Oh. Now, that alone would give Freud uh, a heyday of you know to be able to study. And it was it was very insane. I could probably do a whole podcast episode about some of the craziness we did there. 
But then on top of that, too, you're running a nuclear reactor as well as I was on a ballistic submarine. And legally, I have to say I can neither confirm nor deny whether or not there are <laughs> ballistic nuclear missiles uh, missiles on the submarine. But uh, you have all these things that are kind of critical, <laughs> pun someone intended. And you're so not only is it the operational schedule, but it's also the demand for perfection. Uh, you know, you cannot make mistakes in this. Uh, even on a submarine, one person could make a mistake and the submarine could go down. That's how crazy it can be. But then on top of that, too, we have to train, train and train all the time. So after you're done with your shift, you then have to prepare for the next test and take more and you have to study reactor manuals like crazy. And, you know, somewhere in there you get some sleep, but <laughs> that's secondary. <laughs> and finally, the other big thing, too, is, is that like we don't have doctors, we don't have dentists, we don't have pastors or anything we're everything uh so you know it, it it's it's kind of crazy i i for one of our tours was the pastor <laughs> on our submarine and i was like okay today we're gonna read this oh yeah what's that i don't know we're gonna read it <laughs> <laughs> so you have all that together and it's it's a it's a very brutal lifestyle yeah so i i'm sure you're quite pleased with where you are these days which is not inside a big metal tube Yes. Uh, it was a dream of mine to be able to be home with my kids, uh, to be able to step outside, uh, not have to dress in a uniform every day and um, be able to choose my, shall we say, own adventure. Um, and writing has really been that avenue that got me here. Yeah, and uh, I'm such a fan of of your writing. One of your articles Thank I you. read recently. Yeah, you're, you're welcome. It's fantastic. Uh, I wanted to ask you about uh, because if people have never read it, they're gonna. The headline is is the title strange, but passion is the enemy of modern entrepreneurs. Can you explain what you um, what you were putting in that article? Because I thought it was brilliant. Yeah, well, you know, when we go back to the original meaning of the word passion, uh, it comes from the word uh, the Greek word passi, which uh, in essence means to suffer for a cause. Now, if we think about that in the modern day, when people say, "Hey," go find what you're passionate about and go do that. What most people interpret that to be is, hey, whatever makes you feel good, go do that. That's not what passion's supposed to be. Passion is you care about something so much that you're willing to suffer for it. Now, when it comes to modern entrepreneurism, when we take passion the wrong way and we think about what makes us feel good, when things get hard, well, it doesn't feel good anymore. So therefore, we quit. And that's what drives most people to fail in their endeavors because they go off of the old version of passion. Then when it gets tough, which it always does, no matter what, it's always going to get tough. And then we don't like it anymore and we stop. But if you can define passion as in, I care about it so much, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to push through when times get hard. Those are the people that find success. So my biggest argument for people is, is that really define what passion is. And I recommend when it comes to entrepreneurism, you use the original intent of the word. And if you can say to yourself, I am going to become a successful author because I am so legitimately passionate about it, you will find a way through. But when it stops becoming fun and that's why you are really doing it, that's when you quit and that's when you don't find that next step and you won't actually grow. Great. You have, it seems like you have a lot of passions. Do you have one overarching passion or do you have multiple ones that you pursue at different times? Yeah, well, you know, in truth, when I first started, my honest passion was my family. 
And I mean, I know that sounds cliche, but let me explain a bit. It's it's a bit more. Everybody thinks that the passion has to be, I want to serve people, you know. My passion wasn't a dollar sign. It wasn't about making money. It wasn't about, you know, something fun. It was about making enough money to allow me to get out of the military and to be home with my kids. That's what I was willing to suffer for. I was not going to spend another half of my half of a year not knowing my kids. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, the last appointment I had was uh, two years in, in Korea without my family. Wow. Like I was willing to suffer and to find a way. And even when I failed to find another way and fail, fail, fail as we will, it didn't matter. I was willing to suffer for that. So in truth, it doesn't have to be this altruistic thing. <laughs> I mean, you know me well enough to know that that's I'm not, you know, slimy here, but your passion could be something that's more for you. Now, in time, like you said, things change. And when I reached that goal where I could finally uh, make enough money to stay home, uh, to dictate my schedule, like we talked about in the beginning, when I hit that point, passion itself, like, okay, now what? Um, if I'm content to sit here and just make that much and go through the years of my life, that's cool. But I found that I really... I really found passion in receiving the emails from authors saying that I helped them too, that I got them there, or you know, being able to uh, understand that the actions I take today is going to help somebody tomorrow, and that's a major motivator for me about getting up and about testing, uh, about trying new things and exploring and getting those things out there. So you're right, passion can change, but what I would recommend to people is not to have 50 passions. <laughs> um, but be very direct and intentional about a passion you have and drive it to completion. Yeah, it, it seems as though you've, um, and I've heard this a lot, you didn't follow necessarily a, a linear path. Things came up that, that changed, uh, you know, at the bottom fell out of SEO. You sort of pivoted your, your business in, into a different direction. Uh, so tell us a little bit about Kindlepreneur and Publisher Rocket and sort of where you are now. Sure. Well, back in the day, I did start as an SEO or in a niche website builder. So I'd build all these little websites that would help answer questions. Um, and because my writing wasn't good enough that I could just sit down and write anything I wanted. And people would be like, oh, my gosh, this is like the next coming of, you know, Hemingway. Uh, not even close. Um, but when you have the answer that somebody needs, uh, they'll read, even if you have some grammatical errors. Now, over <laughs> time, my, my, my writing has improved. But at that point, not a chance. I loved SEO because I could do the research. I could find out, wow, there are this many people per month that need that answer and nobody's serving them. I could be that guy. And so I really enjoyed that. Um, and I started building them out. But then I started uh, publishing books and I used that same type of approach to trying to understand, okay, Google does it that way. So does Amazon? And sure enough, it was like, wow, hey, look at that. It's a search engine too. And that's when I really started to see some, some major changes in just myself publishing alone. I created Kindlepreneur because at the time, there really wasn't anybody talking about it or analyzing like that. There was a lot of negativity around it. Um, and this is kind of an interesting thing of you know self-publishing over, over time. But I think when I entered in, the, the people were using keywords like it was this magical thing that would you know make you a billionaire. And all of a sudden, everybody was like, you know, um, and it just became this really slimy tactic. And so I stepped down. I was like, okay, yeah, if you take it that way and you do these things and you're not creating the good package, you're just creating crap. And then you're trying to 
put keywords on it. Like, yeah, that's bad. So let's really, let's really distill this and understand how it plays into the whole picture of book marketing and not just a, a hack that will turn you into a millionaire or whatever the sales tactics were back then. <laughs> and uh, so it's really weird uh, trying to combat that, but trying to uh, bring it into a legitimate approach not some magical hack. Um, and so I combated that for a while. I wrote, I used my SEO background to figure out what it was that people were looking on Google and answer those as well in the book marketing world. Kindlepreneur grew pretty quickly, uh, which was great. A uh, big thing that helped was I had that free tool, the Kindle calculator, uh, where people could convert ABSRs, Amazon bestseller ranks to number of books sold. I also created a tool which would help people to design uh, beautiful uh book descriptions for Amazon, make it super easy, click, you know, WYSIWYG as they call it, what you see is what you get. So those things really helped. Um, but what was interesting and what kind of helped me shift, I guess, towards Rocket was I had all these calculations of my own. I had my own Excel spreadsheets that I was using to kind of uh, uh, to translate information on Amazon into useful information as an author. Um, and I also had an article where I was looking at other tools that I was using at the time to help me. Kindle Samurai was one, Katie Spy was another. And I realized that there were a lot of people that were using those tools, but one in case was Kindle Samurai that I really liked. First off, it only worked on PC. Uh, it did not work on Mac. Second off, the person behind it, um, great person, love them. They're, they're, um, but they're, they're not a self-publisher. And on top of that, they were just a programmer and they were programming other things. And a lot of things were breaking on Kindle Samurai and they were never fixing it. Uh, the other thing too, is they were, they were um, Israeli. So uh, support wasn't there and yet people were still purchasing it because it was helping to an extent. So that got me really thinking about, well, okay, if I were to design uh, a software and I fixed all those things, uh, made support number one, and here are the other things I would like. Here are my calculations I'd like to put into it. Um, I think this would be really useful. So that's what started uh, at the time, KDP Rocket. And we later changed the name to Publisher Rocket uh, because since then we've added so many features. Uh, back in the day, we only did Kindle. Now we do both Kindle and, and physical books and soon we'll be adding Audible. Nice. Uh, but we're also adding all the other markets as well. Uh, we're working with iTunes, Barnes & Noble, and Kobo to be able to include them. And it's kind of hard to talk to those companies when your name's KDP. <laughs> uh, so it was it was a um, negotiation pivot, shall we say. Um, but what's interesting was at the time, I didn't think it would take off as much as it did. Uh, but for me, Rocket kind of became a passion project for me. Um, I'm an author. I kept seeing things of like, wow, wouldn't it be nice? Oh yeah, I've got programmers. Hey guys, let's do this. And it just, we just kept adding to it. Um, and every day I was spending more time kind of focusing on how to improve it. And so now Rocket's really taken off, pun somewhat intended. And uh, now I focus a lot more on software. So we've been building more, we've been building more tools. Um, I also just bought a stake in a software development company so that I would have access to more talent and be able to do more things. So all of those things kind of come together. I know that was a very long winded <laughs> path, but it's like, I didn't start this with the idea that I was going to be Kindlepreneur or that I was going to have software or anything. I, I really got into it. I just kind of kept turning from one problem to another and here I am. Man, it's, 
I've been using Rocket and Kalytics for so long. I co- totally forgot about Samurai and Kindle Spy until you mentioned it. But that's <laughs> funny. Uh, Rocket's so good. I mean, I, maybe maybe sort of a layman's uh, perspective on what Rocket does for someone who's never heard of it before. Yeah, well, Rocket was originally designed to help people figure out if their book idea was going to be uh, a good seller on Amazon or not. Uh, that's the first indicator. You know, you could see, hey, are people searching for this kind of book? Are people buying those kind of books? Um, and so in essence, it will also help you to choose the right keywords for your book. Uh, another thing that you can do is you can look to see how successful other books are. We also have a category feature now that uh, has all 14,000 Amazon categories inside of it. More importantly is you can look at it and it automatically updates to let you know how many books that day you need to sell in order to be number one bestseller. Uh, it's insane how many different types of categories would legitimately fit for your book that you never would have thought to look for. Uh, and so we have a search fe- feature that will allow you to do that. Um, also, too, one cool thing to announce here is very soon we will be adding historical category data to all 14,000. Wow. So you'll be able to see trends in categories, which ones are selling, which ones aren't, how many more books have been added to it, how many have been taken away. Uh, We've been tracking it for almost a year now, so you'll have at least a year's worth of data. And again, that'll just be an automatic update. So that's coming out. And then finally, the big thing is Amazon ads. Um, Success in Amazon ads really requires a lot of keywords or ASIN numbers. Uh, a lot of targeting, a lot of updating. And if you were to do those things manually, uh, it could take hours a week out of your, instead of writing. So we designed an ability to pull uh, relevant, frequent keywords and allow authors to be able to get that data quickly and be able to upload it, saving them time. Mm. Uh, I, I know you're starting to work with other distributors and platforms, but with Amazon specifically, how friendly are you with them and and how are you getting the information uh, willingly unwillingly like uh, I mean I know you're doing it above board of course but um, what's your relationship with them if any yeah interesting enough we never had direct conversations it's funny I've had really good conversations with Barnes and Noble and I'll tell you what I'm really excited about what Barnes and Noble is doing really um, something I'd, I'll be happy to share here that I haven't actually shared um, yet but first thing is I know that Amazon likes what we're doing because they've publicly promoted us uh, multiple times. Uh, One thing is, is that their Facebook page for KDP, their official one, uh, has pointed to our keyword articles before and quote unquote, learn from Kindlepreneur on how to optimize your books for more sales. That's from Amazon itself. So they like what we're doing. They agree uh, with our tactics. Um, But again, we've never had a direct conversation. Instead, though, we're pulling a lot of information from their website as well as uh, through their API. Um, And we're also working with a lot of publishing companies. So like we make sure that our analysis is as up to date as possible. We have a bunch of deals with publishing companies where they share their sales and their books and how much, you know, and so we track their ABSR. So we're able to look constantly at what, how many sales are actually happening as compared to where the book was and its rankings. And so that's really allowed us to keep it more accurate over time. Because uh, let's face it, uh, 100,000 ABSR two years ago would be completely different than 100,000 ABSR of today. Uh, 
heck, that AVSR would be completely different in December when it's Christmas time. Right. Uh, you know, so we keep a seasonal trend. Uh, one of the things that's really I've, I've loved about this is that I've really been digging into the data and trying to understand and learn more. So this has given me an ability to look at seasonal trends, category trends. Uh, it's also allowed me to um, see overall like the effect of Audible on the entire market. Um, I, I'm a numbers guy, <laughs> so I'm, I'm really enjoying the access to it all. So yeah, so that's really where we're pulling from. Ah, excellent. And given all of that and what you've learned in, in working in this and putting it together, what do you think is something that uh, most authors get are mis misunderstanding about the Amazon algorithm or keywords or categories or any of that? Yeah, well, the first thing is, is that there's really three parts to keywords in order to help your book. Okay, the first is identifying the target keywords, uh, which are knowing the right ones to go after. Then the second part is convincing Amazon that your book should be a part of those. Like when people search for it, it should show up somewhere. But the final piece, which is one that a lot of people don't don't look at, is where do you rank for that keyword? So if I type in that keyword and your book shows up number 460, well, guess what? You're, you're not benefiting from that keyword. Uh, however, though, if your book shows up like number four, then people are not only seeing it, but you definitely have people going to your book sales page and making decisions from that point. So it is helping to bring people to your book. But that's a, just kind of a small part to the success because here's the thing. Amazon's algorithm is extremely smart in helping Amazon make more money. That's, that's if you ever want to analyze their algorithm, always ask yourself what makes Amazon more money. And that's probably what it's actually doing. <laughs> you see, if I type in this keyword phrase and I select your book out of the others and then I purchase it, I've just told Amazon directly, hey, when I search for this, that's what I wanted. And then Amazon's like, hmm, okay, well, let's go ahead and put that up a little bit closer to the top. So, but what if, say, uh, other people are shopping and they're skipping your book and they're going to ones under you? Then you're going to float back down to the bottom, okay? So that's going to be one major part is that understanding that your book truly needs to fit that keyword. Just because it's kind of close doesn't mean it's going to help you. A second thing is, is that, uh, you know, I call it the symbiotic relationship between keyword, book cover, and title subtitle. If I type in this phrase and your cover title and subtitle does not reaffirm to me that this is the right kind of book for what I'm looking for, then you lose. Like, it, it's just the way, right? Um, so when I have my keywords, I actually like to send them to the cover designer and let them know, hey, this is the thought process of my market. This, these are the words they're using when they're coming to look at this. And that really helps the artist to say, okay, got it. I need to personify some of these things. Another thing too, especially with fiction, is I know it's a bit taboo to have a subtitle. I get it, right? However, though, if I'm a uh, huge lit RPG right uh, fan, um, and maybe I really like um, you know, certain certain aspects, I can't tell from the cover or this vague title if it really is lit RPG. Like there's nothing that's gonna tell unless it's on the cover or at least reserve it in the subtitle. Reaffirm to me that this is my kind of fantasy, okay? Uh, so again, I'm not saying a subtitle should be used to stuff keywords, but what I am helping is making sure that if you know your market is looking for this kind of book and they can't figure it out from the title or 
the cover because you've made them vague or it's something that you know needs a little bit of nuance in there to know, that subtitle is great. And when you have those things, when you have somebody who's searching, they see your cover, it fits, they, oh, okay, this is lit RPG. This is, you know, all right, what, is it game lit though? You know, all right, hey, it is, that, that one says it. You're gonna get the click. You're gonna send a direct signal that when they type this in, your book was the right one. That's gonna help. Then it comes down to convincing that shopper that this is the book to buy or download. And by the way, I don't know if people know, but Amazon definitely considers either a purchase or a KU download as the same thing. E equal right? in ranking. Equal in ranking because it's a conversion. Okay. And it's, as we know, price does not dictate whether or not they choose one over the other. It is the one thing that I do say, uh, like kind of counters my rule of, hey, if it makes Amazon more money. Um, there are some, I'm not going to go down that path, but there are some, some, things that they are doing, like they are choosing their own products over other products. Um, that has hit the, uh, the news recently. And so, but in terms of books though, we have not seen any data that would support that because one book is 499 and another book is 399 that uh, it will choose the 499 over the 399. However, though, with, in terms of completion, uh, KU download or a sale is the same thing, which I believe is the reason why KU books have such a higher success rate over non-KU books is because if I'm on the KU program, I'm going to purchase, aka download the KU book over the one that would require me to pay. Um, but anyways, as you can see though, if I come down to your book sales page and I'm not convinced by your book cover or your book description, I'm hitting back and I'm looking for another book. So you lost the conversion. So as you can see, this process, the buyer's process helps Amazon to figure out what the right book is and where it should be. Another phenomenon that I don't think a lot of authors know about is that when you show success in that main keyword, say for example, we'll stick with lit RPG, okay? Um, if you have proven to Amazon that you're not only, uh, that when people type in lit RPG that they select your book and your book has a higher conversion rate, AKA makes them more money, what's gonna end up happening is Amazon starts indexing your book, meaning showing it for more phrases, even phrases that you haven't put as one of your keywords or whatever, because they know that LitRPG is a part of fantasy, or they may know that, hey, he didn't say game lit, but let's put him in game lit and see if that works too. They're going to start testing and putting your book into more. We designed this crawler as kind of a test. Um, I did it as a experiment to see, we were testing, like, should you put many words in the seven Kindle keywords, or should you just put the one phrase? But what we did was we tracked how many keywords a book indexed for on Amazon. And we found that those that were showing some high success, their indexing grew over time. And then all of a sudden when their sales were dipping, their indexing shrank. They started showing up for less. So one of the things we found is, is that when you start to show that you're successful for a certain keyword phrase, Amazon starts testing you for more. And if you're successful for those, it grows and grows until they finally hit the point where it's like, okay, we tested for these, but he's not. So, all right, let's, let's shrink back and see. So it's, it's crazy uh, interesting in the fact that when you put the strategy, a part of the, the, you take keywords and you have the cover and you have the title and you have a description, you'll see success. But when you just do one thing and you neglect the others, you will not see the success. And so that's why it's very important to have the symbiotic relationship between keyword cover, title, subtitle, and book description. Without one, the others will be hindered. And it sounds as though the sort of the, 
conventional wisdom or or back in the day you would want to send as many people to your to your book as possible uh but it it sounds the way things are now that that can hurt you if you're not sending target a targeted audience to that book because if that book doesn't convert it's gonna it's gonna hurt you in the algorithm is that true i i'm not sure um i'll be the first to say when i don't know the answer I don't have enough data to be able to support the answer. What I would think, though, um, is that when you're sending somebody directly to the sales page, okay, so to your books page, I do not think that affects your indexing for keywords, but it does affect your, your because you're having more sales regardless, I think that that helps you in a way. So I don't think that Amazon comes and says, okay, in total, all of his traffic, only 0.1% convert on his book. That sucks. Let's hit it. Instead, what they're saying is, hey, this book has sold, you know, 200 copies, whereas this other book has only sold 500 or five. I think another major factor, um, and I do think I have enough data to support this and say with, uh, with credence, is that if... I sell 1,000 books in one day and then none for the rest of the month. And another book sells 1,000 books throughout the entire month. The other book will be much more successful on Amazon because Amazon likes to see more consistency than spikes. They have really fought to temper that over the past three or four years. You know, we used to have this whole giant sales momentum and then it would really ride out. And now we see that you could do a spike and then it quickly dies off. I think Amazon's really fought against that. I think they want to see books that consistently sell much more than books who just have a spike. So sending lots of traffic in a very small concentrated time period doesn't have as much of a good effect on your book sales as it used to, but trying to have a stream of traffic can really help out. That's why autoresponders uh, on an email is really good because you're consistently sending people to your sales page. That's why Amazon ads have so many side benefits because regardless of the fact that you're paying Amazon to send people to it, you're still sending people to it and keeping the book relevant. A lot of people that start Amazon ads, you know, they may see that their ads are like, maybe they're breaking even or whatever, but they'll notice that their organic sales are increasing. That's why. So again, consistency, I think is key. Yeah, I think it's worth noting too that the AMS dashboard is consistently inaccurate. <laughs> yes, it is. So, oh my God, is it ever? <laughs> so you, yeah, so you can't rely on those exact stats that you see in there. No. Yeah. You know, if 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 Amazon and I ever had a conversation, the first thing I'd say is, "All right, I'm gonna come in, I'm gonna fix these things, and you guys are gonna make a lot more money because of it." <laughs> um, first thing first is let's improve your dashboard because. There are a lot of things that they're actually helping to make sales for that they don't report. They're quick to tell you that you've spent this much, but they're slow to actually report how much, how many sales came from it. I, it's, it's maddening. It's like backwards what you think they would do. Right. right. Um, and then there's just so many features that would be great, but yeah, that's, that's really it. I yeah. think, um, but there are a lot of benefits. And I think the most important part for authors is to understand all the benefits that happen from it. Not just that a cause number that everybody focuses on. Yeah. And, and as a longtime customer and avid user, especially if you're an independent author, you got to get Rocket. I mean, that, that's just a, a no brainer. Um, if you're if you're serious about selling books, you got to get that. So just want to thank you for for developing and continuing to support the community in that way. It's fantastic. Well, thank you. That, that really means a lot for me to hear that. Seriously. Thank you. 
You're welcome. You're welcome, Dave. I got one more uh, fun question for you. There's no okay. right, or, right or wrong answer. It'll be a nice way to kind of close out the conversation. Uh, but given all of your experience in the industry and what you're seeing, where do you think the publishing industry is headed in the future? Yeah. Um, you know, I've got a bunch of answers, but I think I need to come back to that one part I was talking about, Barnes & Noble. Um, I think that in the future, we'll see Barnes & Noble be more of a player. Wow. And yeah, I know. Um, one of the things they're working on is they're trying, and I've been doing a bit of consulting for them, so that's been really fun. Um, one of the things they're doing is they're looking at adding sort of an internal data system for your book. So when you put a book on Barnes & Noble directly, you'll be able to then know where people came from to buy your book, what keywords they used when they purchased your book, how many people came to your page but didn't buy compared to those that bought. So you'll now know your conversion rate. Wow. What's killer about this is that it is very benefit. Once they have this set up, it will be very beneficial for authors to actually not only put their book on Barnes and Noble, but then actually send traffic to Barnes and Noble for people to purchase so they can gain that very important information. They, it, can you imagine how much better you would be if you could just know that, hey, when people go to Barnes and Noble and they type this, a lot of people buy that. I mean, you could take that knowledge and then apply it to Amazon and see benefits. Right. And so I think they're taking a very legitimate approach to this and trying to find a way to differentiate themselves. I, I really hope that they succeed in this because, well, let's face it, any competition that Amazon gets is always a good thing for uh, for authors. And um, so I think in the future, we're going to see a lot more focus on external markets. At least I'm sitting on the sideline and I'm watching. Uh, and if Barnes and Noble does that, I'm going to, I'm going to throw all my books behind it for sure. Another thing I think that's really important for the future is Audible. Um, Audible sales are just insane. Uh, they're taking over more and more of the search results. If you go to Amazon, you, you select book and then you type something in Audible is showing up more, more and more every, every week, every month. The reason for that is that when you select book, Amazon will either show a Kindle, a book or an audio book. If you select Kindle, they'll only show Kindle. When, when they decide to show one format of a book over another, it's a clear indication that more people are purchasing that format over a different one. So what I'm continuously seeing on Amazon is that people are choosing the audible version of Harry Potter over the actual physical version of Harry Potter. And the numbers uh, through, the, through the publishing companies and the numbers that are public is showing that audible sales are rising uh, dramatically. And uh, I, I'm not gonna lie, every one of my fiction books is audible. I, I sadly don't read fiction anymore, uh, <laughs> I, I, but I listen to it like crazy. And so I think that that's really an area where authors should really think about. Uh, I would not recommend a new author make their first ever book be audible, but as you start to gain success, look back and maybe convert some of your books to audible or add it to your next one or something like that. But it is definitely taking over more of the market each day. All right. There is Dave Chesson with everything you want to know about living on a submarine. <laughs> I couldn't do it, man. I don't know about you, but like we, we've got a submarine that's, that's docked. Um, it, it's probably a couple miles from our house and you know, you can tour it. It's an old world war two one. They're, they're all over the country. Uh, but I get so claustrophobic going down in those things. And that's just walking through it, you know, for the 10 minutes, just to, to get a kind of feel for what the, the, submarine is like and you know the doors are open so you can still see daylight i can't imagine spending months down there and, and I, I know they've gotten bigger they've improved 
Um, but, but still I, I couldn't do it. I, I don't know about you. No, it's still a tin can in the depths of the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That too, all the weird creaky noises and stuff. And just knowing that that water is just right on the other side, ready to, to push its way on in. And like, yeah, it's, uh, not, not a chance. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, pertaining to books, uh, I was, I was really, um, surprised about what he said about Barnes and Noble. Did that kind of catch you off guard at all? That definitely caught me off guard. And, you know, I worked in finance for years and Barnes and Noble is one of those companies that, you know, we've always watched closely and, and, you know, right now it's owned by a, a you know, a, a private company or a hedge fund, I believe stepped in and, and bought it. The same one that, that turned Waterstones around in the UK. Um, so there, there's definitely fresh eyeballs looking at everything that Barnes and Noble does. Um, so rather than looking at it from the inside as a, a, you know, a business, you know, these guys are looking at it from the outside as people that have taken companies that weren't doing so well and completely flipped them and made them profitable. And, you know, they're looking at every asset Barnes and Noble has, and, you know, what can we do to, to tweak this and, and use it? Um, I, I, the problem I think that we've got with this is, you know, Amazon at this point is just so big, you know, it's, it's a David and Goliath scenario for sure. And like Barnes and Noble, like right now, I, I, all my books do very well for me in Kindle Unlimited. So for me to put those eBooks into Barnes and Noble, they would have to show me something spectacular. Uh, and, and, you know, you can't really experiment with that unless you're, you know, you want to do like a quarter or so outside of, of Kindle Unlimited. But like, I really don't even want to do that. I, I don't want to pull them out of there. Um, so if anything, I might take like a new release and, and try to go wide with it and test out what Barnes and Noble is doing, because I know I could always fall back on KU. Um, that being said, I, I would love to see Amazon get some competition. So if they've got a way of, of somehow doing that, I, I think that's awesome. I mean, it, it, I, we, we don't want Amazon to get lazy. Um, and at the same time, I think if there's somebody out there that that is pushing them, that that's doing something different, that's going to cause them to take notice, that's going to elevate the entire industry. Well, and I'll tell you what was kind of strange about this is we, you know, recorded uh, Dave's interview. Um, not, not, you know, it wasn't this week, but uh, yesterday I saw some posts about uh, Nook, be, uh, about Barnes & Noble really promoting Nook and Nook sort of making a comeback. So there, there must be something stirring. Uh, Dave kind of had wind of it, you know, a few weeks ago and, uh, and it's, it's coming to light now. So, so Barnes and Noble, I, I think some people thought they were going to be gone by now, but they're still around. Well, it's, it's a tricky thing. I mean, they've had to shut so many stores because of the virus, but everything is, you know, it's like the, the world kind of hit the pause button. Um, so there's no telling what those those stores are going to do when they reopen. Um, I, I, I take everything with Kindle and, and Nook, you know, like the physical devices with a grain of salt, because how many people actually use those physical devices anymore? I, I think most people read, you know, if they're going to use the, the Kindle, they tend to do it on their phone or on their tablet. Um, I, I mean, I do own one. I, I own a Nook. I own a, the one from Kobo. I've, I've got all of them, but like they're sitting in a drawer with the batteries dead, you know, for probably like the last six months. And the only time I'll actually take one out is if I'm going on like an overseas flight or, or someplace where I don't want my phone to die. Um, but I think people are moving away from that. But, you know, that being said, I'm sure there's, there's a way for them to, to capitalize it uh, or capitalize on it. Um, and, and I love what he mentioned as far as them showing some of the sales data, because that is definitely, you know, I've been digging into the Amazon ads, you know, pretty heavily and, and their dashboard is, is clunky and <laughs> it's slow and, you know, completely inaccurate. I mean, you can't really go by your sales numbers because you can't really tell what's happening on KU. And like, there's, there's so many different factors that just aren't reflected there. Um, so it would be nice to see somebody, you know, come out with something that, you know, is, is hopefully better. 
Um, the one, you know, he mentioned Audible too. I mean, this is something that I've talked about quite a bit with Forsaken. I, I put out an audio book uh, straight off the bat and it, it was a little pricey. I mean, not, not crazy. I think I spent somewhere between four and $5,000 to, you know, have somebody narrate it and get a finished product out there. Um, but I ended up making that back within the first month. And yeah, it's always been a really good seller of mine. And I think it's mainly because there just aren't, you know, there, there's nowhere near the number of audiobooks out there that there are, you know, physical eBooks. There, there are so many eBooks, you've got a, a huge amount of competition and, and a lot of authors, you know, and even traditional publishers, they don't always take the time and the money to create that audiobook. I, I do see a, a serious uh, shift happening there though. I mean, there's a lot more people looking at it than they were, you know, were before. So I think in a couple of years, if, if we're in some kind of audible heyday right now, I, I think that's going to dwindle and it's going to vanish and, you know, the market's going to get saturated. But right now I, I think, I think every author that's physically capable or has the finances to do it should definitely get in there. I think the AI is what's really going to change that because, you know, it, it could be like, relatively speaking, it could be a 10x or 100x investment versus an ebook to have an audiobook produced. But if the AI gets good enough that 85% of the people can tolerate the AI voice and you can do that for pennies on the dollar compared to, how, you know, what you'd have to pay a narrator, I think that's when the market's going to completely flood. I don't know, man. I don't. I don't think I can listen to a computer read a book to me. Um, I know, not right now, but not it's not, not now. That far yeah. off. <laughs> yeah, I, I think. I mean, because there's certain narr- I mean, narrators are just as popular as authors. You know, on, on Audible. You know, like Scott Brick is one of my my all time yeah. favorites, and he's he's one of those guys where you know I'll, I'll listen to almost anything the guy reads. Yeah. And you know, it's his voice, his inflection, and and things like that. And and I'm sure you know sooner rather than later, computers will be able to duplicate that, and um, you know that that will happen. But it's it's not quite there yet. Um, but it's, it's all coming for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So great talk with Dave. Uh, make sure you guys check out publisher rocket. It's a great tool. He talked a lot about the importance of the keywords with your title and subtitle and your cover and, and how that all works. So, uh, make sure you check out publisher rocket. Great, uh, great tool. And, uh, kind of, uh, it's kind of necessary these days. The, the, you know, the chance of you getting organic eyeballs on your title are, are slim to none. So you, so you gotta do, you have to, you have to optimize everything you can. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So who do we got next week? Next week, we have John Palisano, nice. um, cur- current president of HWA. Uh, he took it over, what has it been now, a year or two years? Yeah, sure I think it has that. been a year or two. Yeah. Yeah, but he took over from from Lisa, um, you know, just just in time for the the world to go into the apocalypse. <laughs> um, so I'm curious to hear what what he's he's got to say. Um, and he's he's got some books out there of his own. So just, an all around um, just really cool guy, nice guy to talk to, and he's got a really good handle on the industry. And you know, at this point, he's talking to all the horror authors out there too. So he's he's got, you know, he's he's got their um, their thoughts in mind. Um, so I'm I'm really curious to to hear where he thinks the industry itself is going. Yeah, it's it's going to be a fun conversation. So I'm I'm really looking forward to it. Cool. All right. Well, to our listeners, we appreciate your support. And if you like what you're hearing, please tell a friend or consider leaving us a review on iTunes. Until next time, have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.